Amen. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Eric. And I want to thank uh, Jim and Karen, as always, for the decorations and for organizing the um, Easter lilies and for all those who, who contributed. Thank you so much for helping us and celebrating on this very special day. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 15, we want to uh, continue, in a sense, looking at some things we've already begun to look at. We've been talking about what might be called the Great Reset, which is something that in our world is being talked about by world economic and political leaders. We've been talking about the true Great Reset, which is the return of Christ, the most important. And we want to see that in the light of the resurrection, in in light of Easter. And so that's why I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 15 today as we continue talking about the things that are, in a sense, going on in our society, but need to be seen through the lens of the gospel. Uh, In this passage, what Paul does is he basically is addressing what you find in verse 12, where he says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so the problem in Corinth was that there were some people who were saying there's no resurrection of the dead. We're not going to be raised from the dead bodily. And Paul argues for the resurrection of the dead for believers based on the resurrection of the dead from the dead of Christ. And that's what we see in this passage. And so uh, the very first thing that I'd like for us to see and to think about is that Paul makes the point that the gospel or the good news that we believe and preach and exalt on this day and and throughout our lives is the good news about Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So let me read for us these first 11 verses, and we'll kind of work our way uh, through uh, a portion of this chapter this morning. In verse 1, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and do and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And so Paul, in dealing with this issue of, are believers going to experience a bodily resurrection, and beginning to address the issue of, the resurrection of Christ says, let me start with the basics. 
And the basics are, as it says in verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And part of that is we know um, that his burial is sort of a testimony to his death. And then he says, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And a testimony to that resurrection is that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and to others. And so Paul begins by saying, without Good Friday, which is Christ dying for our sins, and without Easter Sunday, which is Christ rising from the dead, then we have no gospel. We have no good news. And so what Paul is doing here and trying to help these believers and trying to help all of us is sort of what um, one of the greatest football coaches of all times did named Vince Lombardi. According to the story, after one of their seasons where they lost a significant game at the end of the season in the playoffs, at the beginning of the next season, at the beginning of their training camp, Vince Lombardi uh, walked in front of all of his players on the first day of camp picked up a football and said, this is a football. And then he began to walk them through all the basics of what it means to play football. And supposedly he continued doing that for the rest of his coaching career after that point. But the idea is you can never lose sight of the fundamentals, whether it's a football game or the fundamentals of the Christian life, the fundamentals of the gospel. You can never lose sight of that. And indeed, these believers had lost sight of that. They'd heard it from the very lips of Paul and still lost sight of it. And so he begins there. And when you think about how the Bible talks, we've tried to summarize some of the grand themes of the Bible with phrases like, God is the supreme good, Man is an idol worshiper. Jesus is the double cure. Faith is trust in the promises. Love is the obedience of faith. That's a way of summarizing the grand truths, grand themes, grand doctrines of Scripture. And at the heart of that is Jesus is the double cure. Death and resurrection. Jesus is the double cure. Life and death. Those things. And then when you think about what the gospel is, the gospel is God... In human form, the God-man lived the life we could never live. Jesus died the death we deserve to die. Jesus rose from the dead as the only Lord and Savior. Jesus rules over all things for the glory of God and the good of his people. Jesus will return one day to judge all men, to destroy evil, and to usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth. And at the heart of those Statements or summaries of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead as the only Lord and Savior. And so there's good reason why Paul could start where he starts. At the heart of all the truth of the Bible is Jesus. And at the heart of what Jesus did for us is the death and resurrection that we celebrate on Easter. That's why... Uh, Someone has said, when Paul says, first of all, or of first importance in verse 3, of first importance, what he's saying is, let's go back to the foundation of this house upon which all the promises of God are erected. You remove that foundation, 
you collapse the house. You collapse all that God has promised us. So you can see it in terms of foundation. C.S. Lewis saw it in terms of kind of the lens through which we see all of life. He could say, I believe in Christianity and indeed the death and life, death and resurrection of Jesus as I believe that the Son has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. If you eliminate the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, everything goes dark. All the promises of God collapse. If you think about how Paul argues in this chapter, you realize he's saying, if you eliminate the idea of the resurrection of the dead, then you eliminate the idea of the resurrection of Christ. And if you eliminate that, you eliminate all the light and joy and peace that the gospel proclaims. You can't have Christianity without a living, dying, and rising Savior. And so that's what Paul is doing here, is he's taking us back to the basics, which is something we can never get away from. And that's why I'm so thankful that in God's providence, we celebrate every year Easter. Why? Because in his providence, he doesn't want us to lose sight of the fundamentals. In a sense, God is saying, this is a football. This is what you have to keep in mind. This is where you start every day of your life. It starts with a reminder of who Jesus is, what he did, and the fact that all that God promises us is rooted in that. And you take that away, then you take everything away that we hope for. Well, let's think about this a little bit more in light of what Paul says here. Without Good Friday, there is no Easter Sunday. Looking again at verse 3, he says, Christ died for our sins. Now, the fact that Christ died implies that Christ lived. You can't have a death without a life. So part of the dying of Christ is the idea that he lived. And it says he died for our sins. It doesn't say he died for his sins. It says he died for our sins, which means that his death wasn't connected to his sin. It was connected to ours, which means his life was perfect. If it had not been perfect, his death would have been for his sins. But because it was for our sins, he lived a perfect life. He lived a life we could never live. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. And the little word for there, uh, as R.C. Sproul pointed out in one of the uh, videos we watched this week, who pairs the Greek word that uh, one theologian has said could be the greatest or most important Word in the Greek New Testament. Huper means on behalf of. Christ died on behalf of us for our sins. Not for his sin, but for our sin, which is the idea of substitution. He, di- he died as a substitute. Not because he deserved to die, but because we deserve to die. He died in our place. And yet... He didn't simply, you know, die in his sleep. He died on a cross. He didn't simply nail himself to the cross. He was nailed to the cross, which means he was, as an innocent man, a perfectly righteous man, he was murdered because he was killed unrighteously. And so you can argue that the most evil act that ever happened was on Good Friday, the most evil thing that has 
happened in the history of the world was when evil men sacrificed, murdered God in the flesh. You know, one of the things that we really wrestle with is why God allows evil to continue in the world. Why doesn't just God bring an end to evil? And it's interesting that um, for those who are familiar with the Lord of the Rings story, it's interesting that Tolkien seems to be trying to address that issue of why does God leave evil in the world? And for those who are familiar with the story, there's a character called Gollum. Gollum is a conflicted character, but he's no doubt an evil character in the story, even though conflicted. And at one point, uh, Frodo, another character in the story, um, who is in a sense supposed to be the hero, says to another character, Gandalf, you know, I wish Bilbo had just killed Gollum when he had the chance. And Gandalf rebukes uh, Frodo for saying that, and basically argues that, you know what, um, even the wisest of men can't see all the ends of what might happen. And it could be, Gandalf says, that Gollum has a perfect a purpose yet to fulfill in this story. And at the very end, if you read the book, it doesn't say this in the movie, but if you read the book, when Frodo and Sam are reflecting on what had just happened with when Frodo supposed to throw this ring into a fire to destroy it. The ring represents evil, and he's supposed to carry it to Mount Doom, throw it in the fire, and destroy evil. Well, at the point at which he's supposed to do that, he decides, I'm going to keep it. I'm not going to destroy the, to destroy the ring. Gollum comes up, jumps him and bites off his finger to get the ring and then slips and falls into the fire to destroy the ring. What What is happening in the story? In a sense, Frodo was not the hero. In a sense, he failed to do what he was supposed to do. And in the end, evil destroyed evil. The evil golem ended up being key, playing a key role in destroying evil, which is another way of saying that God has a good reason for leaving in the world what he leaves in the world, even the evil that he leaves in the world, and it's ultimately to destroy evil because God is wiser than we are and he's better than we are. God knows what he's doing. That's why we can see in Acts chapter 2 where it says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. See, when it says back in 1 Corinthians, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, it means it was planned. It wasn't an accident. It was planned. Just like it says here, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, evil men, and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Christ died to bring an end to death. 
since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why was it impossible for Christ to stay dead? Because the wages of sin is death. He had no sin. So he rose from the dead as a great, wonderful testimony to that. There's something else that's interesting along these lines that uh, Tolkien said. He said he believed the history of the world was the history of a long defeat. What's a long defeat? It's a history of failure. And Frodo not being able to destroy the ring in the end is just another illustration of the long defeat. And yet, the long defeat is ours. At our best, we fail. At our best, we do not rise to the occasion to be and do all that we should be and do. And our hope is not in our rising to the occasion to be and do all that we need to be and do. Our hope is in Jesus rising to the occasion to be and do all that we need to be and do. And that's what we celebrate in the cross. John Owen wrote a book called The Death of Death and the, and the Death of Christ. And that's what we see in Hebrews 2 where it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. You know, one of the things that's fascinated me, and probably you too, if you just read through the Gospels, it's amazing how little that is actually said about the crucifixion. I mean, it simply says things like what we find in Matthew 27, and when they had crucified him, and then it goes on. Doesn't get into a detailed explanation of how they nailed him or how painful it was and how he had a hard time breathing and all those things. Doesn't talk about any of that. Why? Because on that level, the other the thieves were going through the same thing. Hundreds of other people went through the same thing on that level. The reality is that what was of significance was something that could not be seen. You couldn't just look at what Jesus was going through and compare it to what the thieves were going through and determine, oh, these guys are just being crucified, but Jesus must be dying for our sins. You can't just look at that and see that. It takes a revelation of God. That's why... Uh, God has to open people's eyes, even as it appears he opened one of the soldiers' eyes to say, wow, this man must really have been the Son of God. There had to be something that God opened their eyes to see. And what we need to be reminded of is just two things, just briefly. In Galatians 3, if you want to turn there, it's verses 13 and 14. Otherwise, I'll just read it for us. But there are two things that I think we need to keep in mind in terms of the crucifixion that was going on unseen. One is, Jesus became a curse for us. He was cursed for us. And number two, he was crushed for us. And I pray that God would help me see that more. In Galatians 3, 13 and 14, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise 
of the Spirit through faith. You notice the contrast between curse and blessing. Jesus was cursed for us so that we might receive the blessing of Abraham. In the Old Testament, it talks in terms of curses and blessings. If you obey, you get the blessings. If you disobey, you get the curses. And basically, the idea of being cursed by God is to be cut off from God, to be cut off from the presence of God, to be cut off from the blessings of what it means to be in relationship to God. That's what hell is. It's being cut off from the blessings and the presence of God. The second thing is crushing. If you look at Isaiah 53, if you'd like to turn there, verses 10 through 12, otherwise I'm going to read it for us. So one is the idea of cursing, being cut off from God. Am I doing something to make that pop? Okay, just... All right, just want to make sure... Um, In Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The picture there is one of he was dying for someone else. He was providing an intercession. He was a substitute. And in verse 10, where it says, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He was crushed in light of guilt, which means the crushing is that he took the punishment that you and I deserve for the guilt of our sin, that he experienced the just penalty for the guilt of sin. He experienced hell, the just penalty for the guilt of our sin. May God help us Um, see and understand more and more what Christ really did. Crucifixion was a horrible way to die, but plenty of people died that way. The real significance of the death of Christ was his being cursed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cut off from the presence and blessing of God and him being crushed for us, punished with the punishment you and I deserve. Essentially, we live in a day and time where there's more and more uh, sense of entitlement, where we feel like we deserve certain things, and we get offended if we don't get them. What does Easter say to all of us? What I deserve is to be cursed and to be crushed. That's what you and I deserve. And that's the glory of the gospel, is that Jesus came to take that for you and me so that we could get what we don't deserve, which is the blessings of God's presence and all that that means in light of what he's promised us. Well, that's the whole idea of what would be the case without Good Friday. There would be no Easter Sunday. There would be no celebration. But what about if there was no um, Easter Sunday, if I said that right, got that right? Um, 
Well, without Easter Sunday, this is what um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. He says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now think about that. Paul is saying, if what you're saying is true, this is the implication of that, and all of us as Christians are to be pitied. People should feel very, very sorry for us if what you're saying is true. Now, why would Paul say that if what these some of these Corinthians are believing is true, and there's no resurrection of the dead, and therefore no resurrection of Christ, why should people feel sorry for Christians? He says there are two reasons. Because we're suffering for nothing, number one. And number two, because we're putting our trust in a dead man. We're both suffering for no good reason and we're fools for trusting in Jesus. If you look at verses 30 and 32, or 30 through 32, which is something we won't get to, but he says in verse 30, Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. When he says in verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? He's saying, if Christ is not raised, then why are we putting ourselves in harm's way? Why are we suffering for the name of Christ? We should be avoiding suffering. And instead of submitting to it by believing in Jesus, we should do what everybody else is doing. We should eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Which means we're either going to die and be judged by God or we're going to die and stop existing. Either way, the worst is yet to come. So let's make the best of it now. If the best isn't yet to come then we might as well make the best of it now. And that's exactly the way people live that don't have the hope of the resurrection or faith in Christ. They say, let's just make the best of it now. There's nothing good to come. Uh, Calvin would say, Paul is basically arguing, to no purpose would we stand in peril every hour if we did not look for a better life after death has been passed through. And he also quotes the Epicureans who said, basically, if death is the end of man, there is nothing better than that he should indulge in pleasure, free from care, so long as life lasts. Well, the idea is, if there is no Easter Sunday, that would be like having surgery without ever being healed or having the cancer cured. It would be like throwing yourself in front of a car to save your child and both of you dying. It would be like uh, giving your all to achieve a goal 
and failing miserably. If Jesus wasn't raised, then he failed miserably. And that's what some people believe, that Jesus was trying to do something really good, but he died and he failed. Well, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you have to believe that that's really the truth. And if that's the truth, then our faith would be vain. And several times in this whole passage, Paul talks about the idea of vain or vanity. It's the idea of emptiness, just like we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so if you read through the passage, he talks about a vain faith as one without a true resurrection or without a true reception of Christ. Uh, If you look at verse... um, 13 and 14, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. means empty, empty like an empty wallet, like an empty glove, like an empty plate. There's no profit. There's nothing there for us that is good. And vanity in this passage uh, can be in terms of believing in something that isn't true, like you're drowning and you have a, an illusion of a lifeboat, but it isn't there, and so you drowned. Or it's like believing in something that is true, but never receiving it personally, like drowning and seeing a real lifeboat, but refusing to get in it. Both of those are the kinds of vanity that Paul is uh, touching on in this chapter. Well, the question, obviously, for us as Christians is, is our faith in Jesus vain? Is it an empty story? Is there really nothing to the idea of the resurrection? Well, let me just um, relate to you an argument as briefly as I can that isn't original with, with me, but it highlights the kinds of things that we look to as Christians that we believe uh, help us to see the truth of the resurrection. I mean, you begin by asking, uh, why was Jesus crucified? It's because he made some outrageous claims. In particular, that he was the very Son of God. And the question is, why would we accept the claims that he made? Well, it's only if he rose from the dead to verify those claims. And so the question is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, one way to think about it is in terms of what are the facts historically that you can see, and what is the best explanation for the facts that are there? And there are three, at least, that you can point to. One is the fact that there was an empty tomb. They discovered a tomb in which had contain the body of Jesus, but did no longer contain the body of Jesus. And we have sources in the New Testament, six different independent sources that highlight that. And historians will say, if you've got more than one independent story uh, with regard to an historical event, that increases an historian's confidence that this is a legitimate historical account. And the fact that the story says that women were the first ones at the tomb highlights another way in which historians say that uh, seems to be a credible account because first century Jewish men would not have made up a story where the women are the first ones at the tomb because in that day and time, 
they wouldn't even allow a woman's testimony in court. So they would not have made that up if that were not really the case that they were reporting. And the fact that the Jewish authorities made up the story, or at least reported the story, that said Jesus' body was stolen indicates that the tomb was empty. They would not have had to say the disciples stole his body if the body was still there, but it wasn't there. The second thing is the appearances of Jesus alive to his disciples, that that scholars today that aren't even Christians say historically we know that Jesus died, was crucified, and was buried. It's very clear historically. It's also very clear historically uh, from scholars who aren't even Christians that there are appearances of Jesus to his disciples, that that's what they reported, that Jesus had appeared to them after his death. And what we find in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about three groups and three individuals. There were more than that, but he talks about Peter and James and himself, Paul, as in having an appearance of Jesus to them, as well as the 12, the 500, and the apostles, groups of people. So we have this list of uh, independent testimony that people reported seeing Jesus after he arose. Well, the third thing is that there was something about the disciples' belief that Jesus had really rose from the dead that bears a lot of significance and a lot of weight. Uh, According to the story, they were devastated, as someone has said, demoralized and hiding in fear. And the reality is, as Jewish people, they had no concept of an individual resurrection of one person from the dead. They believed that at the end of the world, there would be a general resurrection of everyone. But they had no concept of, as, a, as Jewish uh, people, that one person would be raised from the dead in the course of history before the end of time. They also had no concept of a Messiah who would be executed by his enemies and then, obviously, come back from the dead. They had no concept of... God actually uh, sending someone to die on a cross because it says in the Old Testament, anyone who dies on the cross, on a cross, is cursed of God. They had no concept of Jesus as the Messiah being cursed of God. And that's why they were so distraught. They thought he was the Messiah, but how can he be if he was just crucified? That means God cursed him. And we just saw that he had to be cursed because that's what we deserve. And then, not only do you have uh, fearful people like Peter, I mean, Peter probably in one sense was afraid that Jesus might really come back from the dead. And he had just denied him. But you had others like Paul who did not believe he was the Messiah and was persecuting Christians, and he suddenly began to believe in Jesus. You had others like James, who must be a reference to the half-brother of Jesus. And if you read the Gospels closely, you find out that Jesus' brothers, and probably his sisters too, thought he was insane. James was not a believer before the resurrection. Before Jesus appeared to him, he thought he was crazy. How could my brother be the Messiah? 
How can he be God? And yet he suddenly began to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was God. How do you explain that kind of thing? And they were willing to die for that testimony. Now, there are people who look at those kinds of things. And, um, and oh, on top of that, let me just mention, and not only did they believe, but it started one of the, the greatest religious movements in the history of the world. You cannot even measure the impact of Christianity on individual lives and on the history of the world in terms of what has happened as a result of this testimony to the risen Christ. Well, there are those who try to come up with a solution that is not that Jesus really rose from the dead, and one is the idea that the disciples faked the resurrection and lied about it. Well, if you go back to what I just said about their Jewish conceptions about the Messiah, they would not have faked that. They had no concept of that kind of Messiah. It wasn't something that they would have tried to fake. And plus, all the disciples, meaning the apostles, except for Judas, who betrayed him, were willing to die for their testimony that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And the reality is nobody dies for what they know to be a lie. They may die for a lie, which is what we believe happens when when Muslims fly into a a skyscraper, they believe what they're doing is based on truth, but we don't believe it is. But if for someone just to make up a story and then die for it, it doesn't work that way. And so they were willing to die for it. Some would say Jesus didn't really die, but just kind of revived in the tomb. The problem with that is the Romans were professional executioners, They were not going to let you off the cross until they knew you were dead. And if by some chance you fake them out on the cross, uh, he had been beaten so severely and had been so tortured that he would have died in the tomb. He would not have even been able to get his grave clothes off. But let's say he did, and he crawled into the room where the disciples were, beaten and bloody, and said, I've risen from the dead. Would they have thought he had risen from the dead? No, they would have called paramedics to come help him stay alive. That doesn't make any sense. Now, some would say they just imagined it. They thought they saw Jesus. The problem with that is that, um, as someone has said, Jesus appeared not just one time, but many times. Not just in one place, but many places. Not just to one person, but to many different persons. Not just to individuals, but to groups of people. Not just to believers, but to unbelievers as well. There's nothing like this known to us in regard to common hallucinations. That's not how hallucinations work. And so it had to be something more. And on top of that, if they were hallucinating, they would have hallucinated and drawn the conclusion that Jesus had truly died and gone on to the afterlife. They saw a ghost, which means that he had died and gone on to another world. They would not have believed that he had been bodily raised from the dead. Some have uh, conjectured that maybe Joseph just went back to the tomb and, and moved it into a criminal's graveyard. Well, according to Jewish law, that was forbidden. Uh, Once a body had been put in a grave, it was illegal 
to do that. And the fact is, if Joseph had actually done that and the disciples had mistakenly began preaching that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he would just walk up to them, tap them on the shoulder and say, "Um, excuse me, uh, Jesus' body is right over here. Let me show you. I'm sorry. I should have told you that I was going to move the body. And so there are all these ideas. What Another one that's, um, is the legend. You know, it's just a legend. But the re- problem with legends is uh, everyone argues that legends take a long time to develop. And the report that Jesus was raised from the dead, the earliest reports are from right after the time that he died. There wasn't enough time for there to be a legend created. And that's why Paul could say, there are people living today that have seen the resurrected Christ. Go ask them. Go ask them, and you will see. And so the reality is you can't argue for anything beyond a shadow of a doubt. Even in court, they don't ask you to say, do you believe this beyond a shadow of a doubt? They ask you, do you believe this beyond a reasonable doubt? And the Bible and history and the testimony of the disciples helps us to see that beyond a reasonable doubt, we can believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. The reality is... um, we might all want to be like Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe until I see his, the wounds in his hands and the wound in his side. And what does Jesus say to that when he grants Thomas that? Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. John could say at one point, he who has seen has testified, talking about himself. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. So in God's providence, Jesus appeared to certain witnesses. And through their witness, God is bearing witness to the resurrection of his son. We should not expect Jesus to appear to us because he's calling us to believe in the testimony of reliable witnesses. John Calvin could say, just looking at 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul proves the resurrection of Christ from the fact that he appeared to many. That's the basis of his argument is Christ lived, died, rose again, and he appeared to many people in many circumstances, and we have their testimony, a testimony for which they were willing to die, a testimony that's consistent with all the facts of history, a testimony that's consistent with the prophecies of the Old Testament, a testimony that has resulted in not only changed individual lives, but a changed history. Their testimony is reliable. The question is, why then do so many people not believe? Well, it's kind of like C.S. Lewis, who called himself the most reluctant convert in England when he was saved. Why? Because he knew that if he admitted that God was God, that things were going to change. And he wasn't so sure he wanted things to change. And a lot of people realize that if I believe in the resurrection, then things will have to change in my life. Like C.S. Lewis also said, if Jesus was who he said he was, then it's of infinite importance. If he wasn't who he said he was, let's all go home doesn't really matter. 
But C.S. Lewis came to say also, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So he went from being a reluctant convert to being a worshiping convert. He said, I didn't know what I was talking about when I came reluctantly to Christ. The reality is all of us come in some sense kicking and screaming. And then God plunges us into the fountain of living water. We drink deeply and we're so thankful that he did not leave us in our sin. The last thing is, uh, with Easter Sunday, we have the guarantee of the true great reset. What Paul says in verse 20 is, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. The great reset is something that we all long for. Even people who aren't believers are longing for a great reset. The great reset that we've talked about with the World Economic Forum is an attempt to bring peace on earth. It's an attempt to eradicate poverty, to eradicate disease, to eradicate death. That's what they're trying to do. They long for that kind of great reset. And with them I say, Amen. That's what I want. But I don't believe it's going to happen the way they think it's going to happen. They think it can be be something that takes place apart from God and through technology. But Paul is saying a great reset will come, but it's only going to come through the return of Christ. And the only way we can have the hope of the return of Christ, if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, if he didn't really rise from the dead, then there's no reason to think that he will return to reset everything. Like Charles Simeon said, uh, when someone asked him, how do you uh, endure suffering in this life? He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Our head and shoulders are through. Jesus has been raised from the dead. We will be raised from the dead. We will enjoy the kingdom of heaven on earth. That is a hope. That's what the gospel is all about. We're, we're forgiven and given the righteousness of Christ that we might be reconciled to God and be with God forever. I'll just close with this, one of the favorite stories that I know Jan has highlighted at different times is about this uh, West African Bible College. This missionary was teaching, and they were looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, where it talks about Christ returning with a shout. And you might remember the story where one of the students says, what will Jesus shout when he comes back? 
And at first, the missionary is going to just say, you know, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what he's going to shout. Then he begins thinking. He says, you know, when I was on the way to work this morning, I met this guy who was a refugee from another country who had been uh, captured and kidnapped and tortured and escaped and got his family. And in escaping his country, he lost two of his children. And he, uh, this missionary was just thinking about the cruelty that that man had gone through at the hands of evil men. And then he thought about all the poor people that he had seen on the way to work who were suffering in so many different ways in hopelessness. And he said, in answer to that student, you know, I think he very well could say, enough. I think he might shout something like, enough. On the cross, Jesus shouted, it is finished. And I believe he raised his voice and said, it is finished. And what did he mean by that? He meant the suffering's over in terms of the wrath of God. I have endured the wrath that all those who trust in me deserve. But when he comes back, I think he might shout again. In some sense, it's finished. Enough. No more suffering. No more blasphemy against God. No more evil. It's all going to come to an end. It's all going to be finished. The way the missionary said, he said, enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness and disease, enough time, enough. The way it's put in Revelation 21 is, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that that day will come. And that's why we celebrate. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then when when Jesus said what he said in John 14, um, 6, what he said is true. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. That is true. If Jesus was raised from the dead, And that is our hope, is that if we turn from our sins, ask God for mercy, and trust ourselves to Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, we will have access to God and the kingdom of heaven on earth to come. If you have not trusted Jesus in that way, I commend Jesus to you as an able and willing and glorious and wonderful Savior. And I pray that we all would share that good news with those in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Easter Sunday. We thank you for Good Friday. We thank you that together they are the gospel, the foundation upon which all your promises to us in Christ have been made, and the guarantee of a great reset, a return, a new heaven, a new earth, a destruction of evil. We thank you, Father, for the hope that we have for the forgiveness of our sins, which we will celebrate in just a moment. 
Help us to see. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and grant us all joy and peace in believing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.